Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. Now, can I give you just a little freebie? Are the freebies okay for you, or would you rather pay for it? How many of you have heard of the death angel that sweeps through? Did you just read that? Did you just read death angel? What did you read? God said, I will pass through Egypt. Sometimes we just uh, rely a lot on... on, uh, some human deviations from Scripture and human interpretations. But it's always nice to go back and know exactly what the Scripture says, okay? God says, on that night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood... I will pass over you. Celebrate. This is the day for you to commemorate. The generations to come, and you will celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. A lasting ordinance. So this is the ongoing observation of this from this point on. For seven days you're to eat bread made without yeast. This is the unleavened bread. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through the seventh must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and another one. On the seventh day, do no work at all on these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. And then celebrate the festival, festival of unleavened bread because It was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. So I think that little passage of Scripture, just in a nutshell, gives us the Passover, the uh, death of the firstborn, the salvation by painting the doorway, the sides and the top with the blood, and the command that you would uh, eat unleavened bread. And we're going to understand the significance of unleavened bread in just a little bit. And you would continue annually to remember this event. And you notice that there's a big deal made about the yeast or the, uh, the leaven. Not even should there be any leaven in their house during this time. Now, it's to be supposed that they were not prohibited from ever eating leavened bread. But there were times when they had to eat only unleavened bread and could not have that which was leavened. And that points back to the exodus from Egypt at that time of the Passover. Now, some of you have been in church for a long time. 
this is all making sense to you. If you're a new believer, I'm probably touching on some subjects that causes more questions than I am answering for you, and I apologize for that. But there's a very popular story that lives on in the traditions and the celebrations of the Jews as they sit down for their Passover meal uh, around, it would be the first month of, of the Jewish year, but for us, it falls around the uh, Easter time. And they have their Passover meal and their roast lamb and their unleavened bread. Sometimes churches uh, enjoy having some Jewish person come in and uh, explain what the Passover meal means. But the fact of the matter is, people, you don't need a Jew to understand Passover. They can tell you what their modern-day practice is and what it means to them, but they can't tell you a bit more about what Passover means than you know. They have to rely on this history that you are reading. So it's just exciting to think a Jew's going to tell us what Passover's about. We'll read it. You can, you can find out the same information yourself. Now, one of the trickier aspects, as you give me just a few minutes before I really get into the meat of this sermon, to do some setup for you. One of the trickier aspects of New Testament Christianity, that would be us, okay, is accurately assessing how the Old Testament applies to us. Wouldn't you agree with that? It's there, it's attached, it's bound in the same book with the New Testament. We call the whole thing our Bible. But what significance does it have to us? And that's a tricky thing, really, to establish. To a degree, our success or failure in properly putting things in context impacts the quality of our Christian life and even the quality of our relationship with God. It impacts the effectiveness of our duties, the purity of our practices, the clarity of our very understanding of God and His Word and our relationships to God. I am making the case for you that understanding how the Old Testament applies to us if and how has everything to do with your Christian walk. There are those who pay very little attention to context. So they tend to read everything in the Old Testament as though it is God speaking directly to modern man. There are those who will lean on promises of the Old Testament that given in context were very specific promises. One of the common errors that we make is people go back to the Psalms and they read the, the passage about man's days will be three score and ten. And maybe fourscore, that's 70 to 80 years. And then they say what? God has promised me 70, 80 years. And that's totally out of context. It has nothing to do with you or your lifespan. But we buy into that all the time. So let's read it in context and understand the application. There are some people who read the Old Testament and and they try to live by the Mosaic laws. But have you noticed even the people who do that are picky about which ones they want to live by? I had a lady in the first church I ever pastored 
she wanted to try and incorporate Old Testament into her life. She believed that was the Word of God, and whatever the Word of God said, that's the way it ought to be. So my dad had uh, some catfish ponds he had built, and he loved nothing more than to catch the catfish, fillet them out, store them up in the freezer, and when the time was right, have a big catfish fry for whoever wanted one. It would be family reunions. It would be the company he worked for, a company picnic. And he even offered for me at my little church that I pastored a few miles away from my hometown. He said, I'll come over and do a catfish fry for your church. I thought, this is wonderful. We'll get the little Central Park here in town, and we'll have a catfish fry. And, and there was a lady in my church that, biblically, we can't eat catfish. They have no scales. It was back to the old Mosaic law. How many of you are aware of that, according to the old Mosaic law, that catfish with no scales, that they're not edible, Right. Well, if you're still hung up on that, you're not putting this in context. That was for the Jews. That's not for us. So let the catfish reign. Nothing better than to get into the south where they've got catfish ponds down there. They're grain-fed catfish, and they pull those things out and roll them in cornbread and fry them up and either bring it out by the platters. Oh, you can eat catfish, $7.99. But the people who will not eat the catfish or the shrimp or the lobster or, or uh, crustaceans or, or uh, uh, they uh, go by the old uh, chewing of the cud and sputting the hoof and which animals can be eaten, which can't. They can't eat, eat anything off the hog. And it's a dirty animal. Uh, are the same ones that don't pay any attention to that you shall not blend the wool and the linen and wear it. Because they're real choosy and pick, pick and choose what we're going to live by and what we're not going to live by. So it gets messy, see? If you don't keep things in context, your whole lifestyle gets messy. Your religion gets messy. Your practices get messy. Your understanding of God gets messy. And the world doesn't understand context when they're reading the Old Testament. Because they will read things in the Old Testament like an adulterer should be stoned to death. And then their conclusion is God truly believes that every adulterer ought to be stoned to death. So why are we not doing that? If you really believe it, you ought to be stoning people everywhere. And see, it's context. They're missing context. Let's don't, as Christians, make that same mistake. Or our theology gets all messed up. So in order for us to have the healthiest and most successful Christian life, we need to know how to read the Bible in context and how to understand it in context. Otherwise, it just brings all this confusion into our life. So the text today tell us, tells us about Passover. And after I've given all this warning about reading in context, what does it mean to us? Well, there is some significance to this because we have the great theologian, Paul, who brought some of this into the New Testament and said, let's borrow from the concept of the Jews and let's make it a New Testament reality. We have then authorization to do that. In this story, we're told about the deliverance of the, the Hebrews, the children of Israel from Egyptian bondage. The catalyst that caused them to finally be released by Pharaoh was uh, this story. He had been punished with plagues by the power of the Lord through the, Moses and had promised to release them, then he changed his mind, and you know the story. But the catalyst that finally brought it all to a head was this curse to kill all the firstborn. Now, don't think of firstborn in terms of just babies. You can be old and be a firstborn. How many of you here are the firstborn of your family? And how old are you? Well, I'm not, I don't want to know how old you are, but 
You're not a baby. And the firstborn of all the animals. This was very sweeping, except God said to Israel, whenever I do and I pass through and I kill the firstborn, you'll take a lamb. And it has to be a young, one-year-old, and make sure it's unblemished. And you will roast this lamb intact, head, entrails, everything intact, roast it. Now, that bothers me a little bit. I don't even like fish on my plate with the eyes still on it. Got to get rid of that head. It's looking back at me. I don't like eating it. But you roast this lamb entirely intact. Eat what you can. Burn the rest of it. Share with neighbors. If they're too small to afford entire lamb, split it in half and share with neighbors. The blood that you get from this whole thing, you take it and you paint the doorway, paint the sides, paint the top, and you'll be spared from this curse, this plague of the killing of the firstborn. I find that story absolutely amazing. I really do. And it all is so rich in typology. As we know, the shedding of the blood of the Lamb of God. We know that was effective for us. We know it delivered us from the pain of death that was certain upon us. We know being through the door, Jesus Christ, covered by the blood, that we're saved from the death of the world. We understand that. Not physical death, but spiritual death. And Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb, sacrificed whole, intact. All these things are richly symbolic for us. And even as they were to eat this meal, he said, take your cloak and cut it, tuck it into your belt, which meant the long flowing cloak that the men would wear would be gathered up and tucked in so if they were to run, it wouldn't impair the movement of their legs to move. You eat the meal ready to run. The original fast food, okay? And you also add bitter herbs. And we understand that the bitter herbs that they put along with this meal would remind them of the bitterness and the hardship of their experience for this 430 years that they were in Egypt, which the first few years were not a bitter experience. They were welcomed there, but it turned into a bitter experience sometime after that. For the majority of time they were there, they were slaves. And eat the bitter herbs. It reminds you of where you came from. And bake the unleavened bread, because that's going to be significant as well. And for the New Testament Christians, what do we get out of this? We have to understand the significance of the unleavened bread for us to have really that dimension available to us, to understand maybe... A spiritual lesson as rich as the one that they were able to glean from this. So let's bring it into Christianity. Well, first of all, this bread would be made quickly. Any of you bread makers out here, you realize it takes a little time to get the the leaven going? And if this is going to be something you need to do quickly, you don't have time to do that. It takes time. It takes patience to get that bread to rise nice and full. You get, if you get in a hurry, you're going to have flat bread and flat rolls. But you have to take your time. And he said, we don't have time. This is going to be quick bread. 
unleavened bread. So part of it was the speed, the haste with which this needed to be done. Because after all, God's promising to deliver them. And they have to believe in that. But when's it going to happen? Be ready. The second thing is that he said you cannot take unleavened bread with you because it will be leavened with the batch from Egypt. And you don't want to take Egypt with you. And we'll get a little more into the leavening and the yeast before we end this, but I don't want to dive into that right now. So there's two things that were significant about the bread that are going to have significance for us. Is the quickness of the preparation, the readiness, and the, uh, the, the significance of the leaven from Egypt. Now, we as New Testament Christians, we don't celebrate Jewish feasts. God doesn't require us to. Uh, it's, not, it's not a part, these, these ceremonies and rituals are, and rites, they're not a part of, of our New Testament Christian heritage. But so many things in the Old Testament uh, were types and shadows of better things to come. For the New Testament Christian, we've never been forbidden from eating catfish or lobster or pig or eating leavened bread. We're not required to hold this annual feast to commemorate our release from slavery, but we understand the significance of being released from slavery and coming out of the, by the land of the bondage uh, of sin. We understand that significance. We find some New Testament equivalents, uh, such as Jesus being the spotless lamb, which I meant, mentioned, and being led out of the uh, sin's land of captivity, being spared spiritual death by the shedding of the blood, be, the blood being applied to our lives through the acceptance of Jesus Christ our Savior, which gives me pause for another freebie. And that is that we have developed this, it's almost a doctrine for New Testament Christians. But it is, it's not a real biblical doctrine. It's just one that we've handed down from generation to generation. And it's one, it's become a sacred cow for us. And it's dangerous for me to touch sacred cows. I know. But I just can't help myself. We like to plead the blood on things. We do that all the time. I plead the blood over this. I plead the blood over my daily life. I plead the blood over what you're going to do. I plead the blood, plead the blood. And there is no biblical foundation for doing that. You have enough relationship with God to simply pray and ask. That's what Jesus taught us. Just ask anything in my name and it shall be done. He didn't say use a formula. He didn't say you have to plead anything. We applied the blood. The blood was applied at the time we came to a relationship with Jesus Christ. The blood has been applied. Can you live with that? Is that not a point for you to, to, to live in every single day without you thinking, I have to go back and replead and reapply? and re Just ask God in Jesus' name what you need. It shall be done. You say, well, Pastor, why does it make any difference? Well, for many of you, it may not make any difference at all. But it can make a difference because it gets silly. And when things start getting silly, they shouldn't have anything to do with our relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, how does it get silly? Because there was a lady that wrote a book not long ago about pleading the blood that she said she had learned this secret 
of her success in life, and it meant that every day she'd get up and plead the blood, and she was trying to convince the whole Christian world, if they would just learn this secret, that nothing would ever go wrong with her life. See, it gets silly. I didn't even buy the book. This lady gave it to me because she wanted me to convince me of the reality of this thing. So this lady would plead the blood over her, uh, her daily activities. She said in all the years she's been traveling, she would always plead the blood over her luggage. And all those years, not once did she have any luggage lost except for the one time she forgot to plead the blood. Now, that's where it gets silly. Because if it all comes down to your diligence in saying the mantra... It really has nothing to do with God's providence and taking care of his children 24 hours a day when sometimes we're too stupid to ask for help. God cares about you. You don't have to perform rituals. You have a heavenly father. I didn't have to get up every day that I lived at my home and go in and knock on my dad's bedroom door and say, Dad, please, will you feed me today? Will you please take care of my needs? I had a father who knew what my needs were. I never had to worry about him paying the bills so the electricity would stay on. I never had to worry about him buying enough clothes for me to wear. I never had to worry about food being on the table. I didn't have to beg him daily for it. My heavenly father is so much better than that. He takes care of those. I have one thing I have to worry about, and that is keeping my relationship right with him. He takes care of me. Number one, faith that is leavened by fear. And I see this in this story of the children of Israel. For the children of Israel, they were leaving the only place that they knew as home. They had never known any other place, their generation, other than Egypt. And God is telling them, I'm going to take you out of this place, and in the back of their mind, you have to know they're asking this question. Where? We don't have a home. As rough as it is here in this slavery conditions, it's all we know about home. That's our house. This is our family. And over a million people at the most conservative estimation are now getting ready to go out and not settle into some big town that can absorb them. They're getting ready to go out into where? Wilderness. How do you take a million people out there and survive? That has to be the question in their mind. So for them to leave the leaven in Egypt meant they had to leave their fears behind. They had to trust God that he was going to take them and take care of them on their journey. Where do we go? How do we survive? How does Moses plan to care for a million plus people? Where do we get water? Where do we get food? They didn't have a plan. God had a plan. They didn't have a homeland to go to. Sure, they were going to have one. They were walking to the, the promised land, but they had a ways to go. They could have reached it in a couple of weeks if they'd have went straight and behaved themselves, but no, they had to doubt and they had to fear. Now it's going to take you 40 years to get that doubt and fear worked out of your life. People, it's better just to trust God to begin with because he thinks if you've got hang-ups on doubts and fears, he might make you circle them out, and I don't know how many times till you learn to trust him. Why not trust him to begin with and enter straight into the promised land? God was going to deliver them, and it was going to happen quickly. 
And even though they had spent over four centuries in Egypt, most of that in misery, it was not going to take them another 50 years. It was not going to take them another 25 years. It was not going to take 10 years or one year to make the transition out of Egypt. This was going to be immediate. For 130 years there, but a day to get out of it. And it doesn't make any difference how long you've been in the land of bondage and how much of your life you have invested. When God's ready to bring you out, He can bring you out today and leave Egypt behind. Now, when we started our little church in Chillicothe, Missouri, I see some of the wonderful testimonies of what happened as we built that church and the people that came in and the lives that were changed. And one of them that stands out in my mind is... Uh, a man that was the town drunk. He just stumbled all over town. Everybody knew him. And his brother-in-law, this drunk's brother-in-law, started coming to our church. And he was a, he was a good man, but he was a young Christian. One day he talked to my dad, and he said, let's go and pray for Thaddeus. So Dad and Joe jumped in the car, and they went over to Thaddeus' house, the old town drunk, and they prayed for him. I promise you, guarantee you, as sure as I'm standing here, they prayed for that man, and while they prayed for him, he sobered up. God took away the drunkenness. God saved him, and I watched Thaddeus attend that church, and from that day on, Thaddeus never was a drunk on the streets again. Thaddeus was saved by the power of God. Doesn't make any difference how long you have spent in the land of Egypt. When God gets ready to bring you out, it's right now. He can bring you out. That's God's power of delivery. So if the people believe this, if they trusted the Lord and his promise, they would want to make quick bread. They wouldn't want to say, well, it's going to take God a while to get around to it. No, they want to make this bread that's ready to go, the unleavened. Be ready to cut out right now. If God says tonight, it's got to be tonight. But if they found this promise difficult to truly believe, they would probably go ahead and make some leavened bread. They would have plenty of time because they're just not convinced that God is really going to do his work now. Number two, there's a commitment that can be leavened by carelessness. Now, Keying on the point I just finished on, we need to learn how to live like we're ready to go. People who trust in the Lord just have to learn how to be a mobile people. The book of Hebrews tells us this. We are pilgrims. We are strangers. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are sojourners. We are passing through a strange land. Every one of you today that you name Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this world is not your home. You're in a camping situation. You're just passing through here because you're trying to get where you're really going. Your destination is a home that is prepared for you by God. It's not in this world. It's not of this world. Do you get the concept? Nod at me if you get the concept. Say amen if you get the concept. So why do we keep? putting down stakes? Why do we keep investing in the foreign land? Why do we keep this attraction to the things of this world 
And let those things get between us and our relationship with God. Why are we enamored with this foreign land? If we are campers, if we are pilgrims, if our home and our destination is somewhere else, why do we find so many people settling so strongly and so permanently into this land? I don't know. Our life must be uncomplicated. We shouldn't be distracted by commitments to long-term enterprises. doesn't mean you can't make not long-term plans. It just means that there's always this clause that says, but if the Lord leads in another direction, if the Lord changes, I'm ready to change. You cannot make the long-term commitments that keep you from being mobile and ready for the Lord. For the Hebrews, making up a batch of unleavened bread meant that they were making preparations for the trip. For the Hebrews, to make up a batch of leavened bread means I'm not ready to go. My bread's not ready yet. Wait until it's ready. Then I'll be ready to go. But that's not what it's about for the New Testament Christian. Ready to go. We believe Jesus Christ is coming back. One of these days, we believe that. The world thinks it's a fairy tale. They think it's a mirage. They think it's a a mother goose tale. We believe it's a reality. Jesus Christ is coming back. He said he was coming back. Do you believe he's coming back? The question that follows, are you living? Like he could come back any day. Oh, that's a little harder to answer than the first question. Do you believe it? Yes. Are you living like it? I don't know. We call this imminence. You know what that means. When connected to the doctrine of Jesus Christ's return, we believe in imminence. Imminence means it could happen at any moment. Don't get confused with all of the, uh, the, the bad teaching about, about uh, the second coming and the rapture and, and oh, there's scads of teachers out there that will just mess your brain up so bad you don't know if you're coming or going. Don't get confused about the prophecy teachers that stand up and tell you about the signs that have yet to be fulfilled or even say maybe now we know all the signs have been fulfilled and he now can come. Those teachers do not believe in the doctrinal, biblical doctrine of imminence. They only believe it's imminent now because certain signs have been fulfilled. They don't believe that the Biblical writers had a right to imminence, or were they too ignorant to know there were signs to be fulfilled? There are no signs that need to be fulfilled for the return of Jesus Christ. There are conditions that will exist in the last days, but you can't tell me that those people living in those days didn't think that the world looked bad enough, especially for the Jews. Whenever the Romans overran their city and and demolished Jerusalem, didn't that look like end times to them? That sure looked like troublous times and perilous times to them. That looked like persecuting times to them. When people were shaken in their faith, that looked like end times to them. They believed in imminence. Imminence means, I do believe, he could come this afternoon. So if we believe he's coming, and we believe in imminence, 
Now I have to answer the hard question for myself. But am I living like he really could come today? Or we have we kind of put our stakes down and settled into this world to the point where we even dare to pray, Lord, I know you could come at any time, but could you wait just a little bit? I still have something I want to do. We get to holding on to things of this world sometimes, don't we? Are you living like he's coming at any moment? I remember the powerful sermon preached in my little home church by a young man that had found Christ as his Savior, and he had an evangelist's heart, but his family wanted nothing to do with him because they were a very upstanding family in the community, very well-to-do, yet they got this one son they don't know what to do with because he's become this religious nut. And he came to our little church and he preached. There were dozens, dozens, and dozens of sermons. I would say hundreds and probably be safe. Preached in that little church that I heard. But I can't tell you what they were. This sermon. As long as I keep my sanity, which is questionable. I will not forget this sermon. As he got to the end of his sermon and he said, And I had a dream. And I dreamed that the Lord came back and I saw him and I panicked. And I said, Lord, not yet. And the Lord said, why not? He said, because I have family and friends, but they're not ready. God, will you give me just a little time? Give me an hour. And God said to him, you've got an hour. Do what you will. And he ran screaming out of the presence of the Lord. He ran up to family. He ran up to friends. He grabbed the Lord is here. He's ready. And I want you to go with me. Would you give your heart to the Lord? And people were put off by him. They were scared by him. And they'd back off and they'd push him away. And for one hour as he ran from person to person, the Lord is here. I want you to come with me. He'd returned to the Lord with not one soul. And standing there before God, he said, Lord, I couldn't find one to come and follow. And at that point, the dream was over. And when he woke up, he had to ask himself, how do I know the Lord's not coming in an hour? And who do I know that's not ready? And am I going to live like he could come at any moment? Or am I going to ignore the fact that my neighbor is probably dying and going to hell? Or my family is probably dying and going to hell? Do I preach with an urgency that he's coming soon? Or do I say there's plenty of time and make that mistaken assessment like so many people do, like the slothful servant, the lazy servant, my Lord delayeth his coming? Are you living? Like he could come any minute or not. And then Peter wrote about this dynamic. When he said in his second letter. And the third chapter. Knowing this first. That there shall come in the last days. Scoffers. After their own lusts. And they will say where is the promise of his coming. They believed in it at one time. 
But now they're beginning to doubt it. And the scoffers of the last day will actually develop a mentality. As they say, where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. So first of all, you start by believing in the second coming of Jesus. But then you move to a point where you're not living like He's coming soon. And then you move to the point of not even believing He's coming. Because the scoffers of the last day and the people who do not live like He could come at any moment eventually begin to doubt He's coming at all. Don't let your commitment be leavened by carelessness. Number three, consecration leavened by compromise. Leave the leaven in Egypt. Now, in the history of bread making, man discovered yeast and yeasted bread totally by accident. He would make up their dough. And one day, somebody made up a batch of the bread dough, and they left it set out longer than they anticipated, and they probably left it setting out in a warm place, perhaps in a warm room, or in the sun. And it began to ferment and sour a little bit. And when it fermented, it began to rise. And I'm sure the first ones that looked at that, they wonder, what in the world is going on? So they baked it anyway, and it comes out all full of these little holes in the bread, where all the gases were, the fermentation gases. And they ate it, and this is light and fluffy, and they liked it, and they discovered this. But what happened was the conditions were right for the yeast spores of the air to settle into the dough, and the temperature conditions were right, and the sugars were there for the yeast spores to feed on. And the yeast spores ate the sugar and produced gas and the gas was released in the dough and trapped in the dough and the bubbles expanded and the dough expanded and the yeast was just airborne it's everywhere it's all over you right now as i speak can you stand it yeast everywhere yeast is on vegetables it's on the fruit it's in the air it's on the tree bark and so being exposed it gathered in the yeast and they found leavened bread but that is not the leaven that god told them to leave behind how many of you ladies have the sourdough starter or you've done that before you've done that you get that little bag that somebody has started and they give it a little batch of it and they tell you how you need to do this for several days and keep it in your refrigerator and mush it once in a while and that's your starter how many of you have ever received a batch of starter from somebody that tells you how far back it goes? How long it's been around? How many years? Somebody tell me how many years. How many months? How many? Huh? Forever. This batch has been around for, goes back to Egypt. <laughs> well, if you lose it, you can start it again. But some people are proud of the fact that this batch they're giving you, it goes back forever. You see, that is the leaven that they're talking about. They're not talking about just the yeast in there. They're talking about the first starter batch that was started in Egypt. And God said, don't use that leaven to leaven your bread because it tends to stay around forever. And you bring it in your bread, you're bringing Egypt with you. So you're going to start fresh. If you ever eat leavened bread again, it's not going to be the leaven of Egypt. 
You leave the leaven of Egypt there. And you make unleavened bread so it doesn't come in your bread. You get rid of Egypt. Are you getting it, people? Are you getting it? When God wants you to come out of Egypt, you got to get rid of the leaven of Egypt. You can't have that anymore. You have to get rid of the infection of the place you used to be. But I find too many Christians that are trying to come out of Egypt. They think they're coming out of Egypt. They want to come out of Egypt, but they're loading up on the leaven of Egypt and bringing it with them. And after a year of living for Christ, they're still doing things they used to do in Egypt. After five years of living for Christ, they're still doing things they used to do in Egypt. Ten years later, they ought to be growing out of this, but they can't because it's there and it's infected everything. And all that they have in their life is still infected by the leaven of Egypt. If you'd have listened to God and leave those things behind when He brought you out, you wouldn't be bothered by the shackles and the bondages of Egypt. Leave the leaven in Egypt. And come out and live a pure life for God. So they take their unleavened bread. And they leave Egypt. And they continue to rely on the unleavened bread for special occasions. And every time they did, every ceremony they set down to eat the unleavened bread, it reminded them very distinctly. Number one, you have to be ready for God's plan. Number two, you can't take the influences of what you used to be and bring them into Christianity. Jesus covered a similar concept. He said, you can't sew a new piece of cloth to an old bag. It's going to rip, and then the contents of the wine are going to be lost. Yet how many times are people trying to marry the concepts of the world, the things they learned before Christ came into their heart and trying to bring them over and say, somehow this has to be incorporated into my Christian life because this is the way I learned it. This is the way I was raised. This is the way my family is. This is the way my friends are. You got to leave the leaven behind. You can't marry the old to the new. It doesn't work. Start a new life with Jesus Christ. A new way of thinking. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The transforming, the renewing of your mind. Not like we used to do things. And then we have the destructive power of unchecked sin, which brings us to our New Testament scripture that makes the concept of leavened bread or unleavened bread a New Testament reality. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 Paul writes to the Corinthian church in his first letter, and he knows that in this church there is this prevailing issue of sin. There is a man there who has his father's wife as his adulterous partner. And it's not his mother. His mother is out of the picture, but his father is married again, and he's taking his father's wife, and they're having this sordid affair. And the church is allowing this to happen in their church and nobody is saying anything about it. Because unfortunately, we as a community of people find it really difficult to deal with issues. We would rather be liked than to deal with issues. So in this church, that's what it was all about. Let's all love one another. You're okay. I'm okay. Let's just don't deal with issues. But somebody says, yes, but this man has his father's wife, and they're carrying on this affair, and the argument is, 
just ignore it. Forget it. Let's get along. We can't afford to have our church tore up by this. So Paul writes them, and he says to them, Clean out the old leaven so you may be a new lump. Just as you are, in fact, unleavened. So he says two things here. Something needs to be cleaned out so there'll be a new lump. And then he appeals to them on a personal level and says, You are unleavened. You people are like unleavened bread. You're supposed to be in your relationship with God. But your church is not. Your church is leavened. Now, you probably have never read this passage of Scripture in the context in which it was really written and understood it, that primarily he's speaking to the congregation. And he's saying, clean it out. You go back and read the fifth chapter of 1 Corinthians. And he starts with this story about the adulterous man and goes immediately into the remedy. And says, clean out the old leaven. Because you people are supposed to be unleavened. Your church, therefore, should be unleavened. And then he argues and seals the point. says, for Christ, our Passover, and that's where we get the understanding, that Passover applies to us. Paul made the connection. Also has been sacrificed. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know a little yeast, a little leaven, that little batch of stuff, that starter, leavens the whole batch of dough. In the context, he's saying if you let this stay in the church, you're going to poison the whole church. If you don't stop blatant sins like this, anything else is going to be good to go in your church. And you cannot stand that in this congregation. Take care of the business as it comes along. Then he says, therefore, let us keep the festival. I just got through saying we didn't keep festivals. But Paul says, in a sense, the way we keep the Jewish festival is not by hauling out the roast lamb. But he said, let us keep the festival. Not with old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That's how you celebrate your coming out of Egypt. That's how you celebrate The Passover lamb is not with a meal that you sit down and say this is symbolic of. You do it it with your life of sincerity and truth. And you are celebrating the New Testament Christian Passover by your right relationship with God. That's the reason we're not into the rites. It's too easy to lean on the rites and the rituals and forget the practice. Two important points to be understood about this passage. First, in the context, take care of the business of the church. Second, since we are supposed to be unleavened people, we have to make a personal application of unleavened bread. No leavening in our life. If we're expected to purge sin out of our church, we are expected to purge sin out of our lives. And Paul uses these wise words. He says, get rid of the old yeast so you may be a new unleavened batch. The old yeast for the church was a mentality that they brought from another lifestyle. You can't think like that anymore. You have to think like Jesus Christ. Let this mind be in you which is in Christ Jesus. Think like him. Don't think like you used to think. Think like Jesus. Get rid of that old leaven. You don't need that. That that will just cause you more and more trouble as time goes on. So if you've been brought out of the bondage of sin, we have this responsibility not only to leave Egypt behind, but don't take any leavening with you from Egypt. Don't let it poison 
your lifestyle and your theology and your practice. So we're in this great dilemma. We're in this world. But we cannot be of the world. And we know that. We've heard that many times. In the world, not of the world. But how do we do that? Just like the yeast spores that are in the air that we're breathing. Sin is everywhere. How do you be in the world and not of the world? It's in the food you eat. They found out, I think it was Louis Pasteur, that discovered the reason they were able to make wine and ferment the wine. I mean, they, they could do that. Nobody understood why. He discovered the yeast is on the skin. It's not inside. Inside's fresh. The yeast is on the skin, and it takes that. It took that for all the years that they were making wine to make it ferment. It's everywhere. It's on the skin. You're eating the fruits. But in a spiritual sense, the sin's everywhere. And when you stand up here and we say, people, we've got to be in the world but not of the world, it sounds like you're asking for a tall order, Pastor. I don't think we can do that. As long as we're here, we're probably going to be a whole lot like it. But that's the battle. That's the struggle. That's what it really means to live a disciplined life for God. That's what it means when you discover things that are in your life that are causing the leaven and causing the yeast to rise and causing things in your life that shouldn't be. Get it out! Get rid of it. That's what discipline is all about. Not to be satisfied to find yourself suddenly connected to this world in ways you did not anticipate being connected to it. This generation has a tremendous task ahead of them to find out how to be in this world and not be of it. Because this generation is so tempted to be of the world in the way they think in the things they do, in the things they attach themselves to, in the things they become uh, enamored with and they buy into. They just are so tempted to be a part of it, yet the wisdom of God's Word still cries out and says, get the leaven out. Get rid of the old leaven. Be a new lump. Be a new loaf. Be an unleavened loaf of bread for Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself talked about the difficulty and the challenge of being in the world but not of the world. He said in the 17th chapter of John, I've given them your word and the world has hated them. He's talking about his disciples. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. But he says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world because sometimes we get a little drastic and dramatic. Well, if I can't be of this world, what are you going to do? Kill me, get me out of it? Jesus said, I'm not asking you, Lord, to take them out of the world. but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And you need a prayer over you. God, I know I'm in this world. I'm assaulted every day by the things of this world that are corruptive and corrosive. You can't drive down the highway without seeing a billboard that is offensive to your Christian sensitivities. You can't drive through town without seeing a sign on a store. that You can't walk through the mall without seeing some store 
that puts up provocative pictures that is in poisonous and grating against your Christian sensitivities. You have to be on guard 24-7. And it is a challenge to be in the world and not of the world. It all, it all seems so much easier to me and tempting to go get my own little island somewhere. And just move my family there. It's just us and nobody else. And we'll be focused on the Lord. But, you know, it doesn't work like that. Jesus didn't say to get out of the world. He said you got to be there. But you have to learn the power through the Holy Spirit, the power through God, to be able to be in the midst of them and not be of them and not let the leaven of the world get into your life, but to stand there and be pure and holy before God, though the rest of the world is going to hell, as they say, in a handbasket. How do you do it? And you can't do it if you don't have the power of God in your life. You just cannot do it. First of all, you need to make this clean break from Egypt. If you haven't made the clean break, if you're coming out but you're still dragging a lot of baggage behind you, I want to challenge you to give it to God today. The second thing is, if somewhere along the line you've allowed the infections of this world to get into your heart and your soul. This is a message you won't hear many people preaching these days. It's not the popular message. But why don't you cry out, Lord, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. I'm coming back. I want to be where I used to be because I don't like where I am now. I want to return to the purity right after the cross. I want to return to my desire to have you and thirst for you like nothing else in this world. Not live with the contagion that's settled into your heart and your mind and your life. Get rid of the yeast. Bow your heads.